Welcome to the Open House podcast site, available at openhousecommunity.com.au. There has never been a time when time has been in such short supply, so stretched. It's a huge issue for families with an infinite number of distractions, gadgets, voices, screens. How can you stay in touch with each other, other than perhaps mailing or Facebooking from the next room? We'd be interested if you've been able to come up with your solutions and strategies on this to find some space, help your family remain connected. Simple practical things so everything and everyone else doesn't overwhelm your family. Ways in which you've been able to ensure that the important still takes priority over the urgent. We'd love to hear your wisdom on this on 1300 40 2020. For now, my next guest is an expert on this very question. Dr. Justin Colson is an author and parenting coach who's a regular on the project, the Today Show, and is the resident parenting expert on the Kids Spot and the News Limited websites. He says our kids need smart parents, not smartphones. He's one of the keynote speakers at the upcoming World Congress of Families from May 16 to 18 in Sydney, and I'm so glad to say that he joins us now. Justin, welcome. It's great to be with you, Lee. Great to see you. Thanks for coming in. This I think tidal wave of time pressure has kind of dumped on all of us, especially families, not only without much warning, but lots of us have had not much of a clue about how to handle it all. How do we? It's such a complex question because our lives are simply complicated. Our lives are busy. And there seems to be a lot of status around that as well. There's so much to do. There's so many things that occupy our attention. Far too often, we seem to be completely absorbed by the telephone ringing or the fact that it's got some apps on it that demand our attention more than our children or more than our spouse, more than our, uh, you know, the, the people who matter most in our lives. Is it too simplistic to blame technology? It probably is. There's a lot more going on than technology, but there's no question that technology plays a role in our busyness and technology pulls us away. It's, it's, it's such a, it has such a magnetic pull that draws us away. There are so many reasons for it as well, and we'll probably talk about technology quite a bit while we're, yes. we're talking, but our brains respond to reward, and technology gives us instant rewards. And every time we get a new message come through, we get a link on our phone, or we start playing a game and we win something, or you know we get some jewels on some dumb game. <laughs> what happens is our brain releases a whole lot of uh, neuro chemicals, some neurotransmitters, probably the most popular one that people would have heard of would be something called dopamine. Dopamine feels good. It attaches to all the receptors in our brain and all of a sudden we go, oh, I just got a little thrill. We get these instant thrills every few seconds when we interact with technology. We don't get those thrills in quite the same way when we interact with people. There's a lot of negotiation that often goes on there. Relationships can be hard work. But one of the most powerful findings from psychology in the last, uh, well, in the last decade, certainly, and, and, and clearly in the last few years, is that our relationships matter more than anything. Nobody on their deathbed is going to say, gee, I just wish I'd played that game one more time on my phone. I wish I'd sent that last text message. It's so cliched. We just want to talk about our families and about our relationships. That's what matters most. And yet we've also become almost conditioned to stretching ourselves, keeping lots of juggling balls up in the air as a matter of course, much more than, say, many of our parents or grandparents would have ever imagined. 
It's an interesting thing, you know. We we seem to romanticize our parents and our grandparents' generations, and we we think that they weren't so busy. When I talk to my parents and see how busy they even are now, or my grandparents, it seems that busyness is a a part of our our humanness. Okay. It seems that it, it seems to unless we are extraordinarily intentional, we are busy people. Now there are a handful of people that we probably all know who seem to have got an incredible knack for balance and removing the busyness from their lives, but they have to say no to a lot yes. to do that, and it is a skill. And they have to say no often. Often, yeah. often. We're saying no to uh, invitations to go and spend time with other people so that we can spend time with our family. We're saying no to responsibilities, uh, maybe at church or maybe in our social clubs or maybe our sporting clubs. Or we're saying no to promotions at work or we're saying no to extra responsibilities at work. We have to say no and make sacrifices if we want to put our family as number one. And that's one of those things that some of us, including you and I, Yes. Have struggled with Absolutely. our entire lives. That's one of the reasons that I actually became a, a parenting expert and, and went and spent a decade at university to, to get a doctorate in this so that I could work out how I could be a better dad. And, and I learned that I actually have to say no to stuff. So you have a range of practical ways in which families can stay connected. My first question is, how early in a family's life do you start applying these kind of principles? You start at the start. And if you've gone past the start already, you start now. Yes. There's there's never a time that's too soon to start to focus on the people that matter. Maybe I can share a quick story to, to illustrate. There was a an evening where I was cooking at the stove. Now, I'm, a, I'm an awful cook, and I really have to concentrate on what I'm doing. True confessions. Oh, I'm terrible. And so I, I had the oil in the pan, and I just tipped the onion in, which meant that it was time to concentrate because I had to stir. Yes. Uh, and I was in my formative cooking stage at that point. So I was really concentrating on stirring the onion, making sure it didn't brown too fast, it didn't burn. And my two-year-old daughter, uh, Abby, was uh, in the kitchen next to me pulling on my shorts and trying to get my attention. And she was saying, Dad, Dad, Dad. And I was kind of pretending to respond to her, but I really was concentrating on the onion in the pan. And I put her off for probably 30, 60 seconds. She went away. She came back, Dad, Dad, Dad. And then I realized, oh, hang on, I'm a parenting expert here. I'm supposed to do better than this. <laughs> so I looked at the onions. I felt okay that they'd be all right for 10 seconds if I turned away. And I crouched down next to her and I apologized. I said, Abby, I'm so sorry. You've been trying to talk to me and I haven't listened. If you tell me what you were trying to tell me before, I'll listen properly now. And she looked at me and she said, Dad, I love you. <laughs> and then she skipped off into the lounge room and that was all it was. Oh, and I thought... How powerful. How powerful. And yeah. and it would have been so easy. In fact, I can't tell you how many times me and you and, and everyone else has probably missed out on those priceless little moments that that really touch us because we're, we're too busy. And it's not just technology. It's any number of things that, that pull us away from those special moments that often only take 10 seconds. But as a family grows and diversifies in its range of interests and activities, it's inevitable that we'll be caught up in this Russian crust of the pace of life. So what are some of the practical ways in which we can stay connected? Yeah, really, really tough question, Lee. Yeah. One of the biggest issues, when I, when I run my parenting workshops, and, and I talk about this in my book as well, uh, one of the biggest challenges that parents identify is that it's okay when there's just one child. But once we've got two kids and three kids and four kids, all of a sudden the, the capacity that we have to be emotionally available to them becomes diluted. Yep. 
because they, you know, we're, we're dealing with one child and the other two over there are fighting in the corner, not sharing the toys or hitting or, well, you know, it, it's really hard to be emotionally available to them. In terms of strategies, there are so many things that we can do. Really simple things like turn off the radio when you're in the car and talk. Uh, Good or, point. Or something like let's have dinner as a family where there's no TV and there's no telephones. Uh, we're just actually together and we ask about our day. You know, we talk about things that we're grateful for or things we're looking forward to or who we helped. Uh, we actually have a handful of conversation starters in our family for dinner. And, and our kids' favorite thing is the grateful things. We just love to talk about the things that we're grateful for during the day. And research tells us that people who are grateful are happy people. They're healthy people. They do better in life. So we talk about grateful things. Uh, we have some other family principles that we uh, play around with, like service and kindness. So we might often ask about who were you kind to today and how did it feel? Or we'll talk about who did you serve today? Um, one of my favorite questions recently to teach my kids responsibility is how did you use your initiative today? In other words, what did you do without being asked yes, to do it? That. Yes. And, and the, kids, the kids are really responsive to it. But what we also see is a change in behavior. Because they know that they're going to be quizzed about it, they look for opportunities to serve and to be kind. They look for opportunities to help and be responsible. So, you know, dinner together, turning off the radio. During the school holidays, uh, our 14-year-old daughter had a sleepover. And I asked all of her friends to hand their phones in and put them in what we call the phone bin. It's a little box where all the phones go. I'd love to have seen their faces. They were horrified. They looked at me like, you monster. You're taking away my phone. I'll call the cops. It's my precious. (laughs) Give me back my precious. Uh, And and they looked at me like I was just so cruel. And I said to them, let me explain why I want you to give me your phones. When you're here at our house, you're here to be with your friends. And that means that you're here to interact as people. And I want the phones away so that you can be together. I said, secondly, when I go to bed tonight, I don't know what you may or may not do with those phones. And while I trust you, I also know what people can get up to when they're in groups and when they're really tired and when they're being a bit silly. So from a safety point of view and also from a relational point of view, it's just better if the phones go away. Now, they still hated me. (laughs) <laughs> but they gave us the phones and they had it they had a terrific time. I they pro- they probably could have had a good time with the phones as well, but you know, putting the phone away actually matters. Disconnecting actually matters. Yeah, it's a big issue. Yeah, uh, other strategies I I love the idea of a family night. Um Stephen Covey has talked about this in his uh, book about seven habits of highly effective families and many other people have adopted variations of it. But one night a week, set it aside, promise to come home early from work, get home, Phones off, TVs off, and it's nothing but family. Play games, sing songs, teach a lesson, um, cook together, clean up together, tickle, cuddle, maybe watch a movie together, whatever it is. It, it doesn't have to have an agenda, but it's about having that family time. You've mentioned food or meals three times. <laughs> but I, it is a very significant time, isn't it? It really is. And there's, there's an incredible amount of research that suggests that there is a strong relationship. Now, I'm not saying that if you eat together as a family that you will have a happy family. It's no, no, not no. a causal yes. relationship. But there is a strong association between families who eat at least one meal together a day, preferably dinner, I guess, uh, and, and have those conversations, and the children growing up to have a really good sense of their own sense of worth, their well-being. Um, they seem to have good relationships with others. They seem to be popular with peers. They seem to do better at schools when they have actively involved parents. And mealtime seems to be the time where we get to have that kind of interaction that, that 
that promotes these protective kind of factors. You say one of the keys to this whole process for a parent is understanding your child's emotional world. Right. What are you talking about there? It's chapter two of my book, and it's probably the most complicated and difficult part of parenting. In fact, it's the most difficult part of having a relationship. When when people tell stories, they don't tell the story so that you'll get every detail of their day. They tell the story because they want you to connect with the emotion that they've felt. It's a far greater compliment to be trusted than it is to be loved. So when somebody is sharing a story, they're trusting you with their vulnerability. They're trusting you with their feelings, whether it's your spouse, whether it's your mother-in-law, whether it's your kids. So when the kids come in and they tell you a story and they say, I I just had a terrible day because when I was at school, my friend did this to me and, you know, I didn't like my lunch and my teacher said this and they're sharing all these things. They don't actually want you to fix their problems. What they want is for you to understand that they've had a, a tough day. Yeah. And we tell stories so that we can connect to emotions. That's what we're looking for when we tell a story. It's not so that we can fix things up. So this idea of understanding and connecting to our children's emotional world is probably the most powerful thing that we can do as a parent. And what it means is instead of saying, well, did you explain to the teacher, blah, blah, blah? Did you let the teacher know that it wasn't your fault? The kids actually probably did, and they know how to deal with this stuff. The answers are inside them. But what they really want is for mum or dad to say, you felt really embarrassed when the teacher said that in front of the class, didn't you? I mean, that just felt awful. Or they wanted to say, you felt lonely when your friends treated you poorly. And what happens when we do that, Lee, is our children go, yeah, you you understand and you, you care you and you care yeah. and and when we show that we understand the emotional world of our children a couple of things happen first of all they learn that their emotions have names secondly they learn that everyone has those emotions but third they know that they're of worth they know that we can help them to feel good in a world that doesn't always make them feel good and it's a real skill it's a real skill. It involves us doing a handful of things, and, and, and I'll share that with you with you right now. Number yeah. one, it means that when somebody comes to us having an emotional experience, whether it's spouse, whether it's children, whether it's the boss, or whether it's one of our co-workers or you know, one of our subordinates, it means that we don't try to fix things. We don't jump in and say, well, here's the, here's the right answer. And dads especially do that. Got to fix it. Yes. Got to fix it. Yeah. But even mums, because they're in a position of power, will often think, well, this is what I've got to do because they're coming to me with a problem and we like to fix our problem, or fix other people's problems. It means that we identify the emotion, we label it, we actually say, it seems to me that you're feeling this emotion. If they are, we talk about that emotion. It feels horrible when you feel like that. You, I bet you wish that something had happened that was different. We actually have a conversation around the emotion. And what happens is, that conversation brings the person's emotional level down. Emotions are really contagious. Mm. And so when we're having a conversation, if somebody's really emotional, we often get really emotional as well. And all of a sudden it gets elevated and escalated and gets out of control. But if we can bring emotions down by identifying the emotion, having a conversation about it, it sounds really cheesy sometimes. And it, it is a skill to practice. And eventually we kind of do it naturally and it doesn't sound so cheesy. But what happens is that our children relax a little because they know that we understand. Once they know that we understand, then we can ask simple questions like, so what do you think is the best thing to do? Or where do you think we should go from here? Or how can I help? Or what would you what would you suggest we should do? We don't have to fix things at all. They can fix it once they're not emotional. 
And to do this, you require, which gets us back to the start, time. Time. Can I ask you about one particular issue, which is relevant for lots of families, activities, music lessons, sport, other special interests. Children can be committed to too much? Certainly. There's no one answer for this. This is really the sort of thing where we, we work with our kids, we become sensitive to what's going on in our family, and we adjust accordingly. I know one family who felt that their lives were out of control. And so they simply said, we are stopping all extracurricular activities for a year. Wow. How'd they go? They stopped all activities for a year. Um, They were still busy, unsurprisingly, because life is busy. Uh, And they decided that they would start again. And for that family, they decided that two extracurricular activities per child was enough. There are other families who can really comfortably manage three or four Maybe there's only one or two kids. Maybe the kids are all going to the same place at the same time and doing similar things. Maybe they've got the resources where they can manage it. Uh, I've worked with another family who have a nanny, and they're really comfortable with that. They still get good quality time with their kids, but they get the nanny to do all the running around. Yes, yeah. And that works for them. So every family is different, and every set of extracurricular activities needs to be managed based on the the capacity of the mum, the dad, the financial resources, and the kids' capacity to actually manage and hold all those balls in the air as well. And parents should lead by example in the range of activities and interests they are involved in. Yes and no. I actually think that it's great to give kids an opportunity to expand their horizons. So what I see happen a lot is that mum played the piano, so the kids learn the piano, or dad was a swimmer or a, a clubby, And so that's what the kids do. Um, My suggestion is actually to be guided by your children's natural strengths and talents. Because what we'll often find is that our kids will have an an incredible affinity for a certain hobby. Um, to, To use a personal example, I have no interest in horses and nor does my wife. But my daughter, uh, when we went camping one time, we went on a horse ride and she fell in love. Absolutely fell in love. And now she rides horses. She just thinks that horses are her world. She wants to be a horse doctor. And, you know, I mean, that's just that's where she wants to go with it. It's been really hard for, for, for me to be engaged with it and yes. supportive of it because I'm not interested in that. I wanted to become a professional cyclist because <laughs> I love cycling. But, but her strengths and her interests lie in a different area and a different direction. And so it's important for parents to perceive that and be open to it. This is really hard, I should just add, when you go out and spend $1,000 on the push bike that they ride twice and say they don't like, (laughs) or when you spend two years on piano lessons or clarinet lessons or violin and they say, I hate it, I don't want to do it because you've spent all that time and money and investing in it. But we need to be guided by the kids. We had one of our kids' music teachers come to us after a couple of years and said, I just hate being his jailer. Oh, <laughs> that's when we cancelled the classes. Yeah. So you've got to draw a limit. Wonderful that you had a teacher that was perceptive yes. enough and honest enough yeah. to say that. With technology, can I ask this? One of the big questions at stake here, you say, is physical health, not just relational or emotional. Kids yeah. escape from the screens, escape from the technology, get out and get a life. Yeah, let, let's have a conversation about that for a few minutes. Yes. So we, uh, we, we are actually seeing an increase in addictive behaviours related to screens. Uh, in America at the moment, I read something uh, just in the last week or two that suggests that children are now spending over seven hours per day in front of screens. Wow. And I'm not including schoolwork in that. Wow. 
I'm talking recreation and entertainment, seven hours per day. Now, the guidelines from all of the relevant bodies who have done the research into this sort of stuff suggest that children under two should get approximately zero television and screen time. Children who are preschoolers, you know, maybe half an hour a day in the primary school years, up to an hour a day. And in high school, you might extend it to about two hours a day. I don't know any family that abides by those guidelines. No, no, not today. It, it's so hard. Yes. And so how do we manage this this issue? We've got all of these wonderful little dopamine um, neurotransmitters going, kabow, 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 every time something exciting happens on online or on our fi- Facebook or on our phone. Uh, but there are other health issues as well. Um, we're seeing kids sneaking their screens into their rooms or parents are actually saying, here, have a, have a computer in your room. And kids stay up all night. They don't get enough sleep. We know that a teenager needs around about nine hours of sleep a night to function well. But kids are going to school with maybe four or five hours of sleep because they've been Facebooking and tweeting and surfing the net and doing whatever until all hours, getting text messages. I mean, don't let your kids sleep with the phone in their room. For goodness sakes, the text message goes off at 10.30 because someone else is awake and they text for an hour and it's 11.30 and they've got to get up at 6.30 in the morning and they're an absolute write-off. And kids need an hour of exercise a day, physical activity. At the very least. That's exactly right. And so we're seeing a lack of sleep. We're seeing increases in obesity. We're seeing um, kids who are lacking in their capacity to have real social engagement. And there are psychological and physiological ramifications to all of these kinds of issues. I'd be interested in one piece of advice you have for kids, that they need to learn how to be bored (laughs) Why is that? Um, You know what? When we're bored, we become curious and we become creative. I love it when my kids come to me and say, Dad, I'm bored. I feel like I'm being a good parent when they say that because I get to look at them and smile and I say, well, I guess it's time for you to use your resourcefulness and your initiative. (laughs) And they look at me and go, Dad, (laughs) but I'm bored. And I say, isn't it wonderful? And they'll ask, you know, can't I use a device? And, I, and I, I just think if you give a child an iPad or a laptop so that they're not bored, they may not be bored, but you still haven't taught them how to think. Kids need to be bored, just like adults need an opportunity to have that downtime away from screens so that we can actually think, because we tend to have much better thoughts when we have time to just let our thoughts settle and meander And we don't do that enough. Good for adults as well. Good for adults as well. Dr. Justin Coulson, I'm so pleased you've come in to uh, talk with us on Open House. I could keep talking all night on this. There are limits. Justin's book is What Your Child Needs From You, Creating a Connected Family. And he'll be speaking at the World Congress of Families in Sydney on May 16 to 18. We'll put the details of all that at his Happy Families website on our Open House Community Facebook page. Justin, thanks so much. It's a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this Open House podcast. To hear more from Open House, visit openhousecommunity.com.au.